Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. And on the program tonight, we'll start off with economist Diana Messina from AMP and look at the inflation number we saw this week and work out what it means for the economy, stock prices and house prices. Is it a good number that might mean that the Reserve Bank will not raise interest rates as many times as many people have been predicting and worrying a hell of a lot of Australians. And then we'll talk to fund manager Marcus Bogdan and see how he's reacting to the inflation number, what stocks might he be buying or selling as a consequence of the economy that's reflected in this inflation result. And then finally, Prop tracks Angus Moore. Uh, he's an economist there, and he says that house prices over this year to December might be down five or six percent, but maybe another ten percent or so to December 2023. So let's just see if he's ultimately going to be right and why he's saying uh, a, a, a price fall of this magnitude over the next year and a half. So that's the show. Let's kick off now with Deanna Messina from AMP. Welcome to the program, Deanna. Thank you for having me, Peter. Um, we've been waiting all week for this, or even longer, for this inflation number. We got 6.1%. Now, you and your colleagues like Shane have probably put your heads together and had a good look at it. What has it told you? Well, the good news is that inflation wasn't much higher than that 6.1% over the year to June. There was a lot of concern in the past few weeks that we would get a much higher print. The New Zealand inflation figures were a lot stronger than expected. Obviously, globally, we're still in this environment where price pressures are high. Mm. So uh, the outcome was actually completely in line with our expectations. There was nothing in the data that surprised me too much. The areas that are showing the fastest rise in prices are well known. There's high commodity prices, dwelling costs around construction have increased in Australia, and mm. food prices are high because of the floods. Yeah, and I guess automotive prices, we've all known that that was in the June quarter. And, and I guess a lot of people are keeping their fingers crossed that we've seen petrol prices fall in July. Is that going to help the September quarter number to be maybe a good number as well? Well, we think we'll see some slowing in quarterly growth mm. in the September quarter, but it will still remain high. So mm. still at around 1.5% for the headline print mm. and for the trim to still be over 1% over the quarter. So it's a very elevated set of inflation data is still likely over the next six months, mm. but it should we should start to see an easing in price growth. Well, to work out the actual annual amount, um, there's an expectation inflation is going to hit 7%. Mm -hmm. Are you guys in the 7% camp or in the maybe a little bit less than 7%? We have 7%. We've been there for a few months now mm. since we've seen the very large increases in commodity prices. Mm. Uh, we think we'll get to 7% by the end of this year on the headline number and maybe somewhere between 55 to 6 on mm. the trimmed mean. But across the board, we are seeing better signs of inflationary pressures over the next few months. Already mentioned the weakening in commodity prices and you mentioned petrol. Mm. Some of the supply chain indicators around the world also look better around the pressures in the in the whole supply chain process, like shipping costs and cargo costs. So yeah. I do genuinely think that inflation will show signs of easing in early 2023. Okay, so if if the September quarter is likely to be a little bit better than we might have expected, 
How come we end up with 7%? Is it because of previous quarters having big numbers and smaller numbers have dropped off? So you pretty much just have to add up the quarterly yeah. numbers to get to your annual number. Mm. So even though the quarterly rate of growth might st might show a bit of a slowing, you have to add up all the quarters to get your annual rate, which yeah. is why you still get to that 7% peak. Yeah. And But do you think the, the Governor Reserve Bank will be more interested in what he's seen in the most immediate quarters, like this one and the September one, before he makes his decision around what he does for interest rates in October? The CPI, the date when the CPI data is released, the RBA always tends to make their moves mm. after that time. Mm. So they're really key in terms of, of expectations for the RBA. You always tend to see an RBA move afterwards. Mm. Mm. Uh, we think that we'll get another 50 basis point hike next week in August, mm. and then another 25 in September and another one in November after the next set of 25 and figures. 25. That's right. So, so what have you guys got for the cash rate for the end of the year? For and the be 100% right, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard in this environment. Yeah, no. For the end of the year, we have 2.35% for the cash rate yeah. and then another hike next year, so a 2.6% peak. Mm. Now, a lot of economists have been kind of uh, trying to get on top of each other to to, uh, to forecast the peak yeah. of the cash rate. We've seen very high expectations now. I think the median economist estimates probably at about 3% for the cash rate. Yeah. So, all right, so you, you're thinking by the end of this year, 2.35%. Now, you guys obviously have worked out the implications for people with home loans. You've got a home loan. A big one. <laughs> did, you, did you fix? Anyway, I'll ask that question. That's too personal. But um, we have to work out what's the, the, cons the household consumption effect yeah. of paying out more and, and big ones. I've actually done some numbers on 2GB with Ben that like a million dollar loan, that takes a real lot of money off yeah. uh, a borrower on a monthly, but certainly on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. Have you guys at, you know, in your economics team been able to work out the, the actual overall economic impact? And do you think we can actually do it well, the Reserve Bank can do it, and we can avoid a recession. Uh, that depends on how far the cash rate goes. So mm. with our forecast of a 2.6% cash rate, by, by early next year, we think a recession can be avoided mm. because at that level, it would take interest payments that mortgage holders have uh, roughly double what they currently are as a share of income. So mm. we're currently at about 4.4% housing interest payments as a share of income. With a cash rate, 2.6%, that would roughly go to somewhere over 8%. Mm. And that is still manageable in yeah. our view. It kind of goes back to not long-term average, it's a little bit above long-term averages, mm. but still at a pace that would keep consumer spending not very buoyant, but mm. positive. Mm. I think at a cash rate above 3% is when we would run into significant problems. Yeah, and, and I guess it's fair to say that you have to look at the people who really borrowed over the last two or three years. They're the ones who borrowed at low interest rates and maybe over-borrowed because prices were going up and mm. money was cheap. The biggest chunk of borrowers would have borrowed 10 or five years ago. They would have borrowed at very high rates mm. and, and experienced two years of probably, if they refinance, low rates. And so they, they, they've probably actually even built up these big buffers that we hear yeah. about. So these people will probably be able to suffer begrudgingly, these rate rises. 
So the RBA, on their analysis, they published this last week, they mm. looked at what would happen to the home loan book with 300 basis points of rate hikes, which yeah. is what's priced into markets. And on their own calculations, about 38% of households with a mortgage would suffer at least a 40% increase in monthly repayments. Mm. Uh, to, to my mind, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, 40% is a big increase. That's at least 40%. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously not everyone has a mortgage. About in the, sen the census data tells us that about a third of households have a mortgage. Yeah. But I, I think that that is still quite a significant impact mm. to, to households. And I, I was intrigued, and I'm sure you read it as well, the Reserve Bank governor last week talked about moving towards 2.5%. He, he kind of called that a rate that, I don't, don't, I don't think he used the word equilibrium, but... Neutral rate. Yeah, neutral rate. Um, and he, he basically said, you know, he, he's not predetermined on when it has to happen. He's going to watch economic data. So given that you, you, you've got a 2.6, haven't you, mm -hmm. by next year, mm -hmm. um, so I guess if the economic data is surprisingly good, like, for example, we get a, a, a surprise curveball like Vladimir Putin says, ah, that's enough, yeah. and petrol prices even fall more, that could be a really good thing for potentially where interest rates have to go in the short term. Uh, if the data looks... Well, it, it depends. I mean, on the one hand, you want to see some slowing in the economic data, mm. like around the consumer, because you want to see signs that interest rate hikes are working. Yep. Because if we don't see a slowing in consumer demand and inflation continues to, to increase, well, mm. then that's a problem because the RBA wants it to go down. Yeah. Now, I think that the signs are there that consumer spending will slow. We're already starting to see pockets of that and mm. how home prices are, are falling, especially yep. in Sydney. We've seen some weakening in the bank weekly credit card data. But if... The, the, the stuff that you want to see improving is around inflation and mm. we want to see a falling in commodity prices ultimately. Yeah, and, and I guess it's, it's fair to say that um, between now and the end of the year, the, the benefits of a better supply chain will also help the inflation mm -hmm. figure as well. And that could be a, 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 an issue that could soften the, the RBA's approach to how many rate rises they need this year. To my way of thinking, we're going to get to around 3% eventually. But if they go too fast, it, it could well be a, a real kick in the guts for the economy. Well, on the supply chain issues, things are looking better already, like the shipping costs, the container costs, freight costs. Hmm. Some of the earnings results from the US in the past week or two have showed that some of the consumer stocks like Walmart are saying, we've got too many goods and they've oversupplied, they've yeah. got inventories that are too large for their businesses because they overestimated how how much consumers would slow their spending when the Fed started to hike rates because yeah. I guess it did all start very quickly, this this rate rise cycle. Yeah, and, and also a lot of people, because they're locked up, they now want to spend on services. Mm -hmm. And the classic example is airlines. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, they're, they're, they're ripping you off big time because the inelasticity of demand to travel overseas or even travel around the country is so mm. high, those prices are going up and people mm. are paying for services, which ultimately will help at least r retail product inflation come down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and then also I think that some of the issues are also around the wage, uh, sorry, the labour shortages in, around the airline industry, mm. which is um, because we have such a tight labour market, the mm. unemployment rates at a 48-year low, 
that's why you're also seeing this high increase in prices for airlines as well as that heightened demand. But mm. I would expect that services demand, I mean, it's just gotten back to its pre-COVID levels in the US mm. and in Australia, it wasn't even back to its pre-COVID levels in the March quarter GDP numbers. I'd expect that it probably should get back there around now because yeah. our services spending is increasing. Okay, so Deanna, I've known you for a long time as an economist, but you, you, you do hang out with Shane Oliver who also has a crack at the stock market. So do you have a view on what you think is going to happen to stocks between now and the end of the year? I've been arguing I'm expecting a, some positive um, vibrations of the stock market in the December quarter. Mm -hmm. Are you guys seeing it that way as well? In the short term, there could be more downside for stocks. Mm. I think until... Pre-December quarter? Pre-December. Yeah. Pre good. Until good. we start <laughs> to see... Um, more signs of a peak in inflation, a, you know, a genuine peak in inflation around mm. the world, uh, more signs that the economic data probably has reached a trough, that we're not going to go into recession. I think the share market can still go lower because mm. of those concerns, uh, especially around the recession fears. But once we start to see, you know, some signs that the central banks can cool off on rate hikes, that we probably reach a peak in inflation, I still think that there's um, positive momentum in the share market on a six to 12 month view. Mm. And the earnings estimates in the US for the June quarter have actually held up pretty good. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that is driven by, uh, by the energy sector, but even excluding energy, uh, I think that the earnings results have, have actually been quite solid given all the global recession fears that we mm. have on at the moment. Okay, is there any important economic issue I haven't sort of taken you across that you thought, gee, why didn't Switzerland ask me that question? Well, I mean, of course, what's happening in Europe around the implications for gas is mm. quite important and that could mean that Europe continues to suffer very poor growth on a 12-month view, maybe ongoing, maybe not a, you know, a, a, a recession in terms of technical, but just very slow growth, just mm. continuing for quarters on end which Europe has kind of gotten out of in the last few years. And unfortunately, they might just go back into that same situation, which isn't good for global growth. Yeah. And here's a question I thought about while I was listening to that brilliant answer of yours. <laughs> um, well, some of the big US companies like Microsoft made the point that the strong US dollar has hurt their earnings. I think about nearly 0.6 of a billion dollars they, they lost off revenue because of the exchange rate. Um, do you think there's going to be uh, a, a movement over the next six to 12 months of seeing the US dollar come down and mm. currencies like the Aussie going up? What, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. yeah, we think that the US dollar has probably reached a peak for now. Mm. The market pricing for the US Fed looks, I think, pretty spot on for the next few months, even for the next year. Mm. Uh, whereas in Australia, I think the market's still overestimating the level of the cash rate. So um, that should mean that the US dollar could have some downside from here if mm. and also as the US economy weakens. Uh, we think the Aussie dollar is definitely due for a rebound just because we're so exposed to the commodity story and commodity prices, while they have slowed, they're still likely to remain high at an overall level, especially mm. for things like iron ore and coal. Mm. And that should help the currency. So we think the currency is rallying by the end of this year to about 75 US cents. Yeah, okay, good. Um, yeah, it's good for your international travels. Well, that's right. But also it means that uh, the people who are watching this have to think about hedging if, mm. they, if they want to go along the US market. Um, of course, that's not financial advice either from you or <laughs> me. It's just something that people would think about. I guess one final question, and let's go back to what your colleague Shane Oliver was quoted in The Australian uh, on, um, on Wednesday. He, you know, he brought up the crash word and he's, he kind of... Yeah, he's not the kind of guy who warns the Reserve Bank governor, but he, he's mindful of the fact that if they go too hard, it could crash house prices 
and the economy. Um, what kind of, if we saw the, the RBA go 0.5% next Tuesday, then 0.5% again since mm. September, and 0.5% again in October, that would be, would that worry you guys? It would worry me if, 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 if it would mean that the cash rate ultimately would be at a level above 3%, mm. I think, or significantly above 3%, if it would change our view around the terminal rate. Yeah. I mean, our uh, current expectations are for pretty decent correction in home prices, down by 15 to 20% yeah. on peak to trough levels. Mm. And that would take you back to where we were probably around the beginning of COVID. So mm. in terms of the deterioration in, in household wealth, it, it is a big fall for, ha for home prices, but it's not, it won't take too much off household wealth because home prices have had such a big run up. Yeah. But if we, if we see the cash rate well above 3%, then those forecasts will need to be even worse. So, I mean, yes, there is a big risk that prices could come down by 20 to 30% if we see the RBA more aggressive than we expect. Yeah. Phil Lowe doesn't look too aggressive to me, does he? But you have a comment on that. Deanna, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Well, joining us now is Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital, and he also manages the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. Uh, let's have a, a welcome to the program, mate. Good to see you, Peter. Let's just kick off, and uh, as you see, I was champing the bit to talk to you about the inflation number, 6.1%. What do you think that tells you? Well, it tells you that obviously inflation is a real issue for the economy, but if you compare that to the rest of the world, uh, the recent inflation prints in New Zealand, Canada, UK, the US, um, we are still doing comparatively well. Um, compared to the rest of rest of the world, um, and it was a it was a pleasant surprise that it wasn't uh, an outlandish number today. It was slightly below expectations. Yes, it's at rec record record highs, but markets are all about expectations, and uh, and importantly, uh, it was a good good number in terms of expectations. Mm. It's interesting that furniture was one of the biggest price rises. It probably says something about the the companies that will report their um, their earnings, like uh, JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, and so on. Well, JB Hi-Fi's num uh, recent earnings update was actually much stronger than anticipated, and particularly in those categories which you've out outlined, those bigger merchandise categories are still holding up remarkably well and you know the conversations that you're, you're seeing across the board have become far more pessimistic in the last couple of weeks but when you look at the actual evidence and speak to the companies directly and see what they're reporting so far uh, we're still seeing very solid demand and i think that's one of the reasons why we haven't had too many downgrades to earnings at this point. Yeah. Um, Marcus, I've never asked you this question before, but you know, given the fact that you, know, you are in the business of trying picking companies that will uh, pay good dividends and also, if possible, um, produce a bit of growth. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a consequence, um, my question to you is, how significant is what goes on on Wall Street and, 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 and you know, on the NASDAQ to your selection process, you know what? Yeah, you because know, we often play 
follow the leader. Mm. And, and as a consequence, if, if some of that is important in your selection process, what are you getting out of the US reporting season so far? Well, I, I think the comp certainly the composition of the Australian market is different to the US, and you've seen that in the comparative returns that the Australian markets have made compared to the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ this year. And, and whilst we have fallen, we haven't fallen anywhere near those, those sorts, of, sorts of rates. You know, to your question around what I've seen so far, I mean, it's interesting that Walmart have delivered um, lower than expected earnings, particularly on the on the merchandise side. But then, when you look at companies like Coca Cola, uh, Kim Kimberly Clark, and Unilever, they're all all saying that demand is still solid, uh, and they're able to put through price increases, offsetting that. Overnight, you saw Google and Microsoft uh, report the slowest growth that they've seen in, in two, two years. So you, you are starting to see a very mixed picture. But what I do see in terms of those core consumer staple companies is still demand for their products uh, and demand uh, for those, those higher premium products as well. I'm kind of thinking a classic example would be CSL. Now, A, is that a stock you hold? Um, I, I, I presume if you do, you hold for growth. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the, the US has recently started going stronger on healthcare and mm -hmm. at the same time, CSL share price has improved. Is that the kind of thing that, that can influence your selection process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, C CSL is in the recovery stage of their earnings and they were deeply affected by what happened in the pandemic. Most of their business is in the U in the US and they had a, a shortage of donors um, donating plasma. Now that has reversed uh, and now they're seeing sequentially very good growth uh, for the, not only the demand for plasma, but the increased supply. Uh, and yes, we do look at those things in an in idiosyncratic manner. Um, so from a company perspective, irrespective of what's happening in the broader economy or those broader indexes, uh, we are encouraged what we're seeing in terms of um, CSL's uh, underlying demand. Yeah. Um, has, has there been any recent development that has made you either dump a stock or add a stock to your portfolio? And if so, what? So in, in Australia, I mean, we are mindful that we are going to be coming into a downturn in the housing market. Um, the banks are very much uh, very sensitive to what happens in the housing market uh, in terms of slowing lending growth. I think the quality of the book should be okay because we've got full employment. Um, however, we have reduced our weightings in banks uh, and we've increased our, our weightings in the telcos, Telstra and, and Spark. Both have been able to deliver um, price increases matching matching CPI and also they're monetizing a lot of their infrastructure assets which will lead to capital returns to investors. So taking a more defensive stance in those in those companies, 
but we're not giving up on dividend yield. So we're going from a sort of a 4% dividend yield in CBA uh, to a 5 or a 4% in, in, in Telstra and Spark. Yeah. Um, what about a company like Ampol? Have you got that in your portfolio? Um, and if so, what are, you, what are your views on Ampol? One of my viewers asked me that question. So historically, we did hold Ampol for a, num a number of, of years. Um, however, we don't hold the company at this point in time. They are benefiting from higher refinery margins, and that's a global phenomenon that we're seeing at the moment. Um, there's just simply not enough capacity, refined capacity, uh, and so they're benefiting from that. One of the more cautionary uh, issues around Ampol is the potential demand destruction uh, as a cost of living uh, increases uh, are, are more evident. Um, but no, we don't hold Ampol at this point of time. We do hold the Viva Re, which is an owner, an owner of properties which have um, service stations on them. Yeah, and also service stations like businesses like Ampol, they're also in the retail space as well, aren't they? It's not just a, a petrol supply business anymore. Yes, well, that's how they've pivoted their businesses, importantly, um, not, not only from the delivery of fuel, but offering a full service convenience um, uh, store network there. And that's one of the, the drivers of particularly why we own uh, the Viva REIT, um, REIT because of the, the constant demand that we're seeing on the, um, on the uh, consumer and convenience side. Yeah. Is there any other, you know, a major um, either data drop or decision process uh, or event that you're keeping your eye out that could have a big impact to either hurt or help stocks? Well, I think um, the, the most important factor going forward um, is the earnings results season, which is about, well, which has commenced, but we really will commence in, 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 in full in August. And I think that will be absolutely telling in terms of what companies are saying. But I do think that in the last six months that the demand and the earnings will still be solid. We're still going to get earnings growth. Uh, we're not entering into a profits recession at the moment. And that's particularly important for investors that we still get some earnings growth because that will, will translate into uh, higher dividends for our investors. One last uh, question or comment I'd like to get from you is, I was actually just thinking about how we're continually hearing that house prices are set to fall significantly and they range from 15% to 20 to even alarmists out there with 30%. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, if that's the case, it certainly makes the case for being in stocks a far more interesting argument. Yes, and there is a nexus between the housing market and the share market because it is part of the part of the economy. But look, there's all sorts sorts of forecasts out there at the moment. Demand is still quite strong in the underlying underlying economy, and I would definitely um, you know emphasise the fact that with full employment, that is a very different scenario than one, the one we were going into earlier recessions, whether it was the global financial crisis or 
the, the, the recession that we had to have in the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. You, Paul Keating always loves people bringing up the recession we had to have. We can't forget it, can we? <laughs> no, no, not indeed. All right, Marcus, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Well, just about every day we're getting a new prognostication on where house prices are going to go over the next year or two. And the latest we've got uh, comes from PropTrack and the economist there is Angus Moore and he joins us on the program. Hi Angus, how are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, mate. So why don't you just tell us what Prop PropTrack does so when people hear your forecast or what moment prices, they can say, oh yeah, well, I guess they know what they're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we are part of REA Group, who own realestate.com.au as well as many other things, but that's probably what we're best known for by Australians. Yeah. Um, we do the property data side of realestate.com.au. So all the data that powers the website, we do data and valuations for banks and financial service customers, as well as what I'm doing here, okay. insights and economic data. Okay. So in your latest release, you're talking about what you think might happen to house prices to, to December this year. And I think you also roll into um, some forecasting for 2023. So why don't you tell us what you're, what you're seeing in your property crystal ball at this point in time? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is we unfortunately don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. It would make uh, a lot of things much easier. Yeah. And what we're seeing at the moment is that things have cooled and we're probably going to expect that to continue to happen. And a big part of that is the fact that the Reserve Bank is raising interest rates as quickly as they are. That's already affecting house prices. We're seeing price falls across much of the country and particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, prices are already a percent and a half off peak. In, uh, what are we up to? June. In June, we saw prices falling in most cities, including Brisbane for the first time since the mm. pandemic began. So that's starting to broaden out. Okay. When we look at other measures too, things like buy demand on realestate.com.au, how long it takes to sell a home, auction clearance rates, all of things, these things have cooled off. So we're seeing that sort of slowing more broadly. Yeah. So have you guys actually created um, a computerized model with a whole bunch of variables, including interest rates, um, clearance rates at auctions, and all the important variables that ultimately affect uh, the price of a property. And this is where these numbers come from. So we have a bunch of different approaches. Um, that, that's one of them. Another one is just simply looking at what's happened to prices so far this year and kind of extrapolating forward. Prices have a lot of momentum in them. So you can actually do a lot worse than just looking at what's happened and, and extrapolating that forward. Yep. Um, another approach we use is looking at what might happen from the Reserve Bank, what that would mean for buyers borrowing capacity and therefore what that might mean for what people can afford to pay and how that will affect prices. Yeah. So uh, ultimately, you know, you, you're, you, you have to make a, 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 a good quality guess on what the RBA might do and the impact that will have on debt servicing and ultimately to, to the numbers of people who show up to buy a house and be willing to pay what the seller wants. Yeah, it, exactly right. You know, to, to a first order effect, what the RBA does is going to be the main driver 
of house prices over the next 12 to 18 months, and indeed over the long term. Okay. So why don't you tell us what you think will happen, say, in Sydney and Melbourne being the, like the flagship um, markets for, for property in the country, what do you think is going to happen by December this year and then by December next year? Because some people would be, would be thinking, oh, gee, I should have sold it six months ago. But the, the question is, if you wait another 12 months, is it likely to be 15% lower? Therefore, you should sell today. So, so what, are you, what are you guys calling at this point in time? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So we're forecasting that we'll see sort of low to mid uh, percent falls by the end of the year. So that is December this year compared to December last year will be something in the order of three to five percent nationally. We'll probably see larger falls than that in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly given that they're already more than one and a half percent off their peak as at June. Right. Brisbane and Adelaide have performed better thus far this year, and so we'll probably expect to see smaller falls in those markets by the end of this year. If we're looking a bit further out into 2023, our expectation is that given how quickly the RBA is raising, and you know, certainly that's where market expectations are as well, we're going to see larger falls through 2023, something in the order of high single digits nationally, potentially into low double digits. And that will bring prices overall something like 10 to 15% lower over the next couple of years. Hmm. If it rolled into the next year, would you expect prices to level off or there'd be another, another leg down? Once we get into later 2023, I think we'll, we'll have seen the RBA finish their current hiking uh, phase. Right. Hopefully inflation will be coming under control by that point. Certainly that's what the RBA is was forecasting in May and we'll get updated forecasts pretty soon, but I'd, I'd expect they'll still be expecting that inflation will be coming under control by late 2023. Yeah. So in that environment, you know, without the RBA raising interest rates, I'd start to expect prices to at least flatten out and potentially start growing again into 2024. Okay. That exact timing, obviously very much up for debate and will in large part depend on the RBA. Yeah. And Angus, a lot of people hear these numbers and they, they forget that if you look at a market like Sydney or Melbourne, not, not, the house prices don't fall universally across the city. And so I guess the, the right question to ask you at this point in time, are, are certain parts of these cities falling faster? Like, for example, is the high end of these cities seeing bigger falls than, say, the, 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 the suburbs, which are more accessible, more viable, for, for a, a, a bigger majority of buyers? Yeah, it, it's a great point, particularly in a market like Sydney where you know, prices are very high and deposit burdens as a result are very significant for many buyers. What we've seen thus far is that some of the markets that had performed very well through the pandemic, things like the Northern Beaches, have slowed a bit more quickly than some of the other areas. So we have started to see prices cooling there more so than in, say, Southwest Sydney. But more broadly, that impact of interest rates is going to affect everyone. Now, not, not all markets will feel the same and you know, we'll continue to see different price outcomes. But broadly speaking, interest rates are going to have an impact on all parts of the market. Yeah. The, the kind of maybe one caveat I'd throw on this, and I think the area that I'll be watching over the next 12 to 18 months, is the difference between houses and units. We saw through the pandemic that houses grew significantly quicker than units. In fact, the, the gap between them has almost never been wider. As we come into this period where borrowing capacity is going to be reduced, prices are high and that makes deposit uh, burdens very significant. 
I think we'll start to see some buyers moving away from houses and towards units, given their relative affordability. Hmm. And that, that trend that became huge during the coronavirus of people wanting to work from home and therefore wanting to have a backyard and all that sort of stuff, is that trend continuing or is it starting to, sort of, in a slow way, dissipate? Given what you said there, I'm kind of thinking it might be. Yeah, so you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that's the big unknown over the next 12 months. So certainly, as you say, through the COVID pandemic, we saw a big shift towards people wanting more space at home. Houses outperformed units, bigger houses outperformed smaller ones. And we saw further out areas and particularly regional Australia outperform inner city areas because they offered that bigger homes um, at a more affordable price. Whether that will revert, there are maybe some signs. The gap isn't widening as much as it was, but it is still there. I think that's what we'll be watching for the next 12 months, whether people start coming back into the city. Mm. We're seeing that to some extent in rental markets. Rental demand, particularly from overseas in inner city areas, is starting to pick back up. Whether we'll see the same on the for sale side, key question over the next 12 months. Yeah. And at this stage, have you been able to to see any... Uh, increased buyer interest either from foreigners who are located elsewhere or immigrants who who have arrived over the last few months? Yeah, so on realestate.com.au we can track where searches are coming from. So we have seen a pickup in searches from overseas for Australian property to buy. It's not huge though and that's maybe not surprising. You know, overall conditions have come off total searches are down, views per listing are down. So, you know, overseas searches are kind of swimming against that headwind of overall conditions being softer. Mm. But what's really changed is actually on the rent side. And that's maybe not surprising when you think about the types of migrants that come to Australia. There's a lot of students in there. They tend to be here for shorter periods. Renting's probably more attractive for them. And they are almost almost exclusively maybe a bit strong, but disproportionately searching for inner city rentals. Mm. And when we look at official data, that's not surprising. We know that recent migrants to Australia disproportionately live in inner city areas. And so that's gonna provide some further demand in inner city areas. Mm. And these are areas that really did underperform during the pandemic. In fact, even in Sydney and Melbourne, rents in the inner city are still below where they were pre-pandemic. Pretty significantly in Melbourne's case, nearly 20% below. we'll start to see some of that unwind as, as borders reopen and migrants return. Yeah, so I guess potentially, I know you're not in the business of giving advice, nor, neither am I, but probably turning up to inner city auctions and, and, um, and open, open houses could be a, a good buying opportunity if, if we're prepared to wait a couple of years and see immigrants coming back and foreign students coming back. Yes, I, I hesitate to provide financial advice. I struggle <laughs> enough with my own investments, let alone everyone else's. Yeah. But I, what we've seen over the past two years is rental yields fall quite significantly. You know, prices grew very quickly and rents, while they're growing quite quickly in many areas now, did fall through the initial part of the pandemic, particularly in inner city areas like inner Sydney and inner Melbourne. Yeah. So rental yields fell a lot, which made it less attractive for investors. And we did see a lot of them sell out that's going to unwind over the next 12 to 18 months. Rental markets are tight. Advertised rents are growing very quickly. In fact, over the past year, they've grown 7%, which is very brisk indeed. 
that's going to start to rebuild yields and make it a bit more attractive for some of these investors to come back into the market. Yeah. Angus, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. That's Angus Moore from PropTrack. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back on Monday, of course. If you want to know more about us, go to switzerreport.com.au where a lot of our experts look at other stocks uh, that you might be interested in either buying or selling. Thanks for joining us. See you on Monday.